1996, Bill Gates said, content is king. And boy was he right. Three decades later, it still occupies the throne. For lawyers, law firms, and companies serving the legal industry, content marketing and thought leadership marketing are must if they want to build their books of business or increase their revenues. Hi, I'm Wayne Pollock. I'm a former AmLaw 50 senior associate who discovered the world of content marketing and thought leadership marketing and hasn't looked back. In each episode of this podcast, I interview lawyers and legal industry in-house marketers who are doing big things with their content marketing and thought leadership marketing. This is Legally Contented. Welcome to episode number five of Legally Contented. I am your host, Wayne Pollock. When we normally think about lawyers and law firms engaging in content marketing and thought leadership marketing, we normally think about them crafting content that is directly related to their practices. If you look at some of our recent guests on the podcast, Christopher Rulin, who was at the time a big law litigation partner, wrote a book for Practicing Law Institute about attorney-client privilege. Olga Mack, who is building the future of law, is writing about the intersection of law and technology. She's writing about the intersection of law and visuals and how to provide better legal services through incorporating visual content. And even Mike Murphy, a partner at K&L Gates, is doing TikTok videos about resale price maintenance strategies and other topics that fall within his antitrust and competition practice. But if you're a lawyer, could you still benefit from creating content that does not 100% relate to the area of law that you practice? Well, my guest in this episode, Neil Tyra, will tell you absolutely. He is an estate planning attorney in Maryland, but he has a podcast, The Law Entrepreneur, that sets out to answer the question, what did law school not teach us about the business of law that we need to know? He has been podcasting for six plus years as of the time of this episode being recorded. He has over 300 episodes, over 10,000 downloads, and arguably more important than any of that, he is perceived as an authority in the legal industry regarding the business of law and the way that small law firms and solo practitioners can run their law firms. In this interview, Neil and I discuss his pre-law careers, that is plural, careers, his decision to launch the podcast, some behind the scenes of the podcast, but really the most important takeaway from this interview is that you can, as a lawyer, create content that is not directly related to your practice of law and yet be seen as an authority in the legal industry and grow your practice because of it. Here's my interview with Neil Tyra. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Legally Contented. I'm your host, Wayne Pollock. I am thrilled to be here today with Neil Tyra. Neil, please introduce yourself and give us an idea of who you are. Thank you, Wayne. As you said, my name is Neil Tyra. I am an estate planning attorney located just outside of Washington, D.C. I like to say I'm a reformed litigator. I used to do personal injury and family law, but then when my kids got old enough and moved away, I wanted to disconnect myself from the courthouse so that I could go visit them and work from the beach and do all those kind of uh, really fun things that don't involve schlepping into the courthouse. So I transitioned, started to transition to estate planning. And it's been a really great transition for me. I've really enjoyed it. It's now been going on the better part of 10 plus years. And it allows me to practice law from wherever my laptop can plug in. On top of that, I also, like you, have a podcast. I've been lucky enough to be the host of a podcast called The Law Entrepreneur, which we are proud to say are celebrating five years in existence. And over 300 episodes, we publish an episode on a weekly basis, and we attempt to answer the question, what they didn't teach us in law school about running a business, which your listeners may recognize is damn near everything. And they didn't teach us anything about running a business. And because of that disconnect of what they didn't teach us in law school and what is required to be successful as an attorney in practice, I think that uh, speaks to why the podcast has been uh, as successful as it has been. And I like to tell people that the law, therefore the podcast, is my fourth career. I guess law is my fourth and podcasting is my fifth. I'm going to have to start revising my story. (laughs) But I started out cooking for a living, then I built hardware and software systems for NASA and DOD for over 20 years. 
all the while I was a practicing martial artist. And when I left my last job with computer science corporation, one of my black belts said, Hey, let's start a commercial karate school, which is what we did. And I owned and taught there for the better part of a dozen years, but always had the urge to go to law school. Always had the interest and something that was in the back of my mind for a long time. And I did the math and determined that if I didn't get in pretty quickly, my kids were going to suck up all the money there was. So I beat them to the fin of the starting line. And I got admitted to the Catholic University of America Law School before I had to start paying their college bills. So I went to law school full time during the day, sold the karate school. I was ready to retire from that. My body was taking a beating literally and figuratively. And so I sold the karate school, went to law school, and the rest is history. Well, we have to know what uh, martial arts were you teaching at your school? Yeah, so I taught the Japanese form of Gojuru. So Gojuru, the word means the way of the hard, soft. So go means hard, chu means soft, ru means the way of. So gojuru is the way of the hard, soft. The interesting part of that is if you are familiar with the Karate Kid movies, the basic underlying martial art in that movie was gojuru. Now it was Okinawan gojuru, which was the predecessor of Japanese gojuru, because the founder of Okinawan gojuru is Kojun Miyagi, hence the name. Mr. Miyagi in Karate Kid. And the block soft hit hard is a direct translation from Gojiro. So that's that's what we did for a long time. When you watch the movie, do you scream out loud at all these references to people uh, uh, who are with you? Uh, to point? Well, I did out? annoy people for many years. <laughs> I will say, though, I'm not a big fan of the new series reboot. Although my family is, they love it. I can't get past that. Well, I think the, the takeaway here is don't invite Neil to any martial arts movie watching parties because he will just be, <laughs> he'll be a sour pus and, and just not, yeah. not a good guest. So I want to talk a lot about a lot of things while we're together. Obviously, congratulations on 300 episodes of Thank your you. podcast. And really, that, that's why you're here primarily is because I'm fascinated by the idea that you, the humble solo attorney, you're able with all the things you're balancing, you're still able to put out a podcast on a weekly basis for what, almost six years, a little more yeah. than six years. You have been able, I'm assuming, to improve your legal practice by what you've learned, improve your career by the connections that you've made. So I want to touch on that uh, in a moment, but I'm, I'm curious. I thought I had a gap between undergrad and law school when I worked for four years, <laughs> four whole years, one presidential term at a public relations firm in between undergrad and law school. You worked for, politely, significantly more than one yeah. presidential term. I'm curious how going to law school later in life impacted your experience there and how it impacted your first job or two out of law school before you eventually founded your firm. Well, it's a really interesting question because, frankly, I was on the 12-year undergrad program. Um, I had always worked through high school and always had money and had things to keep me busy. And when I went, went away to college, uh, I couldn't find a job. I was cooking for a living then. Couldn't find a job in this little podunk town where the college that I went to was located. So I didn't have enough money and uh, I had too much time on my hands. I was a pretty good student. And I had too much time on my hands. And I thought, this is not healthy for me. So when I came home that, that spring slash summer, I went to work at the Goddard Space Flight Center and working in the uh, space business. And the company that I worked for the, in those days, educational benefits, they paid for your college education, regardless of what you took. So I started taking two classes a semester at the University of Maryland, and I wasn't really picky about what I studied, I figured somebody's paying me to take classes, I'll take whatever I like. And so I flitted about and did that for eight, nine, 10 years, all the while building a career in the space business in the engineering world, got married in that uh, time frame. 
still going to school at night, a couple of classes a semester, a couple of classes each summer semester. And finally, I had to decide, what are you going to do, get a degree or not? And so I decided to I had to figure out which bucket I had the most credits in, and I got I had the most credits in something closer to computer science. So I got my undergrad degree in information systems management, which is computer science without a lot of the programming. And that kind of dovetailed with my work as, a, as an engineer, systems engineer for NASA at the time. So, so that was a 12-year program. Then I took a 12-year hiatus. And when I decided, nah, I think I'm going to go back to school and go to law school. First it was find out how, if I could even get in. So luckily enough, I got in, uh, admitted to Catholic and I had a decision what to do with the law school, sold it, that paid for uh, uh, karate school, sold it, that paid for me to go to law school. And I treated it like a full-time job. I went to school at 8.30 in the morning, whether I had a class or not. I was on campus at 8.30 and I stayed till 5.30 when I drove home, I had dinner with my family and then I studied all night and did the same thing. And just treated it like a full-time job. And I was the oldest person in my law class by a long shot. And it was interesting because I approached it as a job. You know, some of the kids approached it as an extension of their undergrad studies. And we had different viewpoints on what it meant to be getting an education. And I loved law school. I absolutely loved it. And I didn't like the exams. It's been a long time since I sat for an exam. And I will be the first to admit, I did not do well on my first semester exams. And as you know, in a lot of ways, law school is, is stupid in the sense that you got to crush that first semester if you have a chance of, of doing well later on. So I, I took what you know was dealt with me and I just um, continued on. I got better every semester at taking law school exams, and but I enjoyed the whole experience. And all the while, I thought I was going to put bad guys in jail because I worked in this, I was able to exploit some adult friendships that I had and get an internship at the state's attorney's office. And that's what I thought I was going to do until the moment came to accept the job they were offering or not. And I had a little crisis of confidence and said, well, let me just see if there's anything else out there that might interest me. What I found is that there's not a lot of firms clamoring to hire a 52-year-old associate. And it's not exactly age discrimination. It's more like a business decision that they're making. They're, they're looking at, well, we want to invest in somebody for 10, 15, 20 years as an associate on a partner track. You're not going to be around 10, 15, 20 years. So thanks. What I think they lose sight of is the benefits that older candidates could bring to the table. But, you know, that's uh, that's big law and medium-sized law's choice. I was lucky enough to get an offer, however, from a small boutique personal injury firm in downtown Washington, D.C., and I had never worked in downtown Washington, and I thought that might be interesting, and so that's what I did. I started working for a company, a firm, Simeone and Miller, Tom Simeone and Craig Miller. Big shout out to the two of them that took a chance with me and provided me a great opportunity to learn the ropes uh, as a litigator. And, um, you know, I stayed with them about two and a half, three years until my son was going into high school. He's a huge athlete at the time. I knew he had a chance to start on two varsity teams as a freshman. It wasn't fair to Tom and Craig to be able to say, hey, I can't come to work today. I got to watch my son wrestle. I got to watch him play soccer. So I had already owned a business. So I said, well, I'll just start my own practice. And it, literally, that's as much thought as I put into it. Yeah, I'll just start my own practice. My thought was, I've already made all the mistakes there is to make about running a business. So how hard can it be? And what I found out was, there's a whole new set of mistakes to make, <laughs> which I promptly managed to do. I made a lot of mistakes when I first opened my practice, but muddled through. And finally got to a point where it was profitable. And as I said, the rest is history. I, I like to joke that when I left my large international law firm after six and a half years, I had the perfect combination of both ignorance and naivete to yeah. fall on my face my first year or two 
when I, after leaving, because you really don't know jack squat about business until you are either running your own business or you are running someone else's business. And we'll get into obviously how your, your podcast plays into that and helps lawyers with that, but you really don't know what you don't know. And what's interesting to me about any pushback or any hesitance you would have gotten as a early fifties attorney just entering the practice Mm -hmm. is that you're going to have partners at firms who are used to being the authoritative figures and the ones who don't want to take shit from anyone, let alone a new associate, even if you are their peer in terms of your age, you are in the, on the totem pole of lawyers, you are a little baby because you just came out of law school versus them having a decade or two. And what's really interesting is given the fact that you ran a, a karate a studio, you had a direct to consumer type of business. You would think that perhaps there were lessons that you had to share with a law firm that well, would you're, be able to help them. You're hundred percent correct. We had this conversation uh, a couple of days ago with some friends of mine. I, and I think firms, and it's still the same way. They're hesitant to hire older associates or, you know, and we really see it a lot of is uh, sadly, in my opinion, women who go to law school and end up getting pregnant right out of law school or shortly thereafter, stay home to raise a child, and uh, five, six, seven years later, want to go back into the workforce without any experience, and they find it extraordinarily difficult to get a job. And what I don't understand about medium size and, and larger law firms is they're turning their back on the fact, like for me, I literally, literally knew thousands of families because they'd all come through my karate school. I had a vast network of connections. I knew people from all walks of life. What firm wouldn't want to tap into that resource, that Rolodex, as it were? That's number one. Number two, what's the one thing that most senior attorneys complain and bitch about the most. It's about finding good staff and training them and teaching them how to operate and behave in an office environment. I'd had 30 plus years of that. I knew, I knew how to talk to people. I knew how to interact with people. I knew what, what the protocols are around the office, you know, water jug, coffee pot. Come on. And you're turning your back on that. So I, I think it's, I think it's short-sighted and, and it plays to their detriment. Was that network of yours something that you rested your hat on when you went out on your own? Did, did you think, well, gee, I have this network. Surely enough people each year will have some kind of estate planning issue that I'll be able to keep my family fed. Well, Yes, and yes, in a different way. My, my viewpoint was when I went uh, in solo practice for myself, at that point, I was doing personal injury work. And so I, I figured <laughs> somebody's going to have a car accident somewhere. <laughs> and then I added family law to my practice because, as I used to like to say, people uh, are continually wrecking their cars and their marriages. <laughs> so I figured there'd be no shortage of clients. And certainly that did help me. I was able to go. And again, I'm a tech geek. So when I had the karate school, I had a database of any, anybody who ever contacted me or walked in the door or responded to a newspaper ad in those days. So I had, I used the term Rolodex shows my age, but I had a contact database that literally had 5,000 people in it. So when I opened my doors, I marketed to those 5,000. Hey, remember me? Karate teacher taught your kid, or maybe you know, he chose not to, to train with us, but you remember where my school was right up there at Travilla Square. Well, I'm an, I'm an attorney and I do family law and personal injury work. And here's the kinds of things that I can help you with. And I absolutely directly marketed to them. So walk me through as we lead up to you launching the Entrepreneur podcast, you start your firm, you go out on your own, you start doing PI and family. And then what, what shifted that made you think estate planning would be the, the way for you? 
Well, like I said, my kids grew up mm-hmm. and they moved away. My daughter's an actress in Hollywood. It was kind of like taking your pet dolphin to the ocean. When we took her to LA, she went to school at, at USC, University of Southern California. I knew she wasn't coming back. And my son, when he graduated uh, college, ended up in San Diego. I knew he wasn't coming back, <laughs> whoever leaves San Diego. So, you know, I was making a lot of trips back and forth to the West Coast. And I have a house on the East Coast on the beach. There came a few occasions where I couldn't go to the beach because I had to, I had to be in court. Now, I never missed a single show of my daughter's until she did a show right before COVID in Anchorage, Alaska. Mm. She said in February, she said, dad, you can miss this one. It was Chicago. The musical It was one of my favorites. She's been in multiple times, but anyway, I, I said, I, I need to get out of the courthouse. I need to find a way to decouple myself. And one way would have been to hire an associate and to have the associate do all the the litigation work, the courtroom work. But I was also getting to the point where I was starting to tire of some of the drama in family law in particular. Mm. There were time there were family law cases that I really enjoyed working, particularly with helping somebody and, and oftentimes in an abusive relationship, get out of that. That's fulfilling, but I didn't like, I didn't like some of the things you had to do in family law. And so friend of mine was doing estate planning, said, I never have any of those problems. I love doing estate planning. And so started looking into it. And I thought, well, now that's kind of a, um, a fortuitous opportunity, because at this point, now I'm getting much closer to, you know, the latter half of my own life than it was the the, the first half. And so all my peers, my folks in my age group, the couples that we met through my kids' school, all of them started to think, well, they need estate plans. They need a will. They need you know, a trust. And they have parents who also need those things. So it was a really easy transition in terms of finding a marketing space and kind of an interesting point when I was doing family law, I had decided that I did not want to do high net worth divorces. We have a lot of high net worth couples in Montgomery County, one of the richest counties here in uh, Maryland, which is one of the richest in the country. So there's no shortage of high net worth divorces, but I found that they were difficult to work with because they measure their lives by every penny that they ever earned. And they had the resources to make, their spouse miserable. And so I didn't like that. So I stopped taking high net worth divorce cases. I found out in estate planning that little different vibe, but the same thing is true. High net worth estate plans, you make a lot of money on, but I found myself gravitating more towards the middle class and maybe lower middle class you know, young families just getting started, having their first baby, buying their first house, getting their first real job. I found those to be more satisfying, helping them set up their estate and learning to grow with it. And so that's what I gravitated to. Where does the podcast come into play? You've been at the firm or you've been, you've had your firm for, based on my math, I don't know, about nine, 10 years. What inspires you to start a podcast? But a podcast that some would argue has nothing to do with the substance of the law that you provide to your clients. In, in, in an effort to build my practice, I started working with some coaches. And I'd heard that everybody needs a coach. Michael Jordan has a coach. So I started working with some coaches. And to be honest with you, I wasn't real satisfied with the results. I wasn't real satisfied with the experience. And so at the time, I was a podcast junkie. I was listening to a whole variety of podcasts, not all of which had to do with entrepreneurial space or business. Most of them had to do with sports, frankly, or lifestyle, just kind of entertainment, sort of on-demand talk radio, if you will, to tell you how old I am. So I was a podcast junkie. 
So one night I said, you know what? I'm just going to start a podcast. And again, that's how much thought I gave it. It's kind of like, eh, I'll start, I'll start a law practice. Or, oh, I'll go to law school. I just said, eh, I'm going to start a podcast. Now, I started thinking about this, like, well, what would I podcast about? Well, God help me. I don't want to podcast about family law. Who's going to want to listen to that? Was my thinking. So I, I figured that I would tailor my podcast to, to the emerging solo and small firm practitioner. And right about that time, I had a couple of law school buddies of mine, young kids, who were desperate to, to pay back their uh, student loan. Couldn't get a job for one reason or another, downsized out of a job, and opened their own practice and promptly ran into trouble. And ultimately, were dis, were disbarred. Wow! And what I came to learn was that the quickest way to get disbarred is to screw up the trust account. And they'd never had a checking account in their life. And here they were expected to to manage a, an escrow account, and they didn't handle it well, obviously. And I, that got me thinking: Well, who let them down? Was it their family that didn't teach them how to manage a checkbook or was their undergrad or was it law school? And then I started thinking about it. Law school didn't do anything to teach us about how to run a business, how to run a practice. And that's when I had the aha moment. I said, all right, I'll interview people about how to run a law practice. And I figured if I could do that for three to six months, interview some smart people, that some of it might rub off and I might be smarter as a result. And that's how we, how we started. And three years later, five years later, we're still at it. Was there some was there something about podcasts versus a newsletter, a blog, or just ongoing social media posts that drew you to that format? Yeah, specifically, uh, as my mother used to say, I have the gift of the gab. I like to yak. I do like to write but it's a little bit of an effort. And I like the idea of a podcast being able to have a conversation with somebody and be able to share that with, you know, an audience that a little bit of the performer in me, I guess, maybe to some degree where my actress daughter gets I was going to say her genes came from somewhere. Yeah. Her looks came from her mother. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll, uh, make that clear. So yeah, so I just started the podcast and the first couple were kind of dreadful, but I, I got my uh, feet under me. And I, I made the conscious decision when trying to focus on how the, the podcast would be structured, that there's a very famous podcaster runs an entrepreneurial podcast about people being on fire. If you can put those two together, you know who I'm talking about. Hmm. Okay. And he asked the same damn questions for every guest. And he did a podcast every day. It was one of the podcasts I listened to. It was the same questions in the same order. And well, I'm not doing that. And so when I started interviewing people, I said, listen, I'm going to treat this as if it's two folks getting together over a cup of coffee or an adult beverage talking about business. And we're just going to see where the conversation goes. Because I figured if the conversation, this is how egotistical I am, if the conversation interests me, probably going to interest somebody else. Well, that's, that, that could be an example of knowing your audience or, or perhaps not knowing your audience, <laughs> but yeah, as someone who has listened to your podcast and uh, subscribed to your podcast for a while, clearly there is a rapport that comes through that might have been created mere minutes before you pressed record and, and started chatting. And I think that that's an important point is that you have to know the medium that you are choosing to market yourself through or to develop as a side hustle or whatever. If you're a terrible writer and it takes you four hours to write 500 words, you might not want to do that. If you are not a big fan, if you don't have the gift of gab and you're not a big fan of chatting with people who you may have never met before that very moment, podcasting is probably not right for you because you're not going to want to invest the energy and time to get to know the person through a conversation that creates 
a podcast that people can say, wow, that's actually really informative and that's really helpful to build my business. Um, yeah. I, I like the idea of you self being selfish enough to select people that would be of interest to you, but also betting that there were many, many other lawyers in your shoes, which is to say, didn't know why law school left them so unfulfilled when it came to the business side of law. And you really, I think, touched a nerve with in that time frame, 2015, 2016, as we are seeing more of the contract worker, more of the remote lifestyle coming along and lawyers as a result of some, some services and companies out there adopting that lifestyle, but yet not realizing that while they might be members of an esteemed profession, they're business owners. And you got to run a business and understand the money that's coming in and the money going out to make sure that you feed yourself and your family. And I'm wondering, did you set out to talk to a particular kind of guest? Were there either uh, consultants or accountants or other lawyers? Like, How did you prioritize who you wanted to speak with, knowing that you had this mission to help inform people about the business of law and, and really take it upon yourself to make up for what law school didn't teach them? Well, it evolved over time into this formula that's been so successful. When I was originally thinking about, oh, I'll, run, I'll do a podcast, one of the things I was thinking about doing was I, I knew a lot of prominent older attorneys in the county who loved to tell stories about practicing law way back when. And it was kind of a nostalgic look back on, on how the practice had grown in the area. And I, I thought, well, let me, I'm going to go interview the great legal minds of Maryland, as an example. So that was my first thought. And then I thought, well, gee, I'm going to run through that list pretty quick. And that's really only going to have an appeal regionally. So when I started to then refine the um, purpose of the podcast, to be answering that question, what they didn't teach us about running a business in law school. I said, well, who, who should I ask about that? So the first thing to do is to talk to successful solo and small firm practitioners to see what they did right, what they did wrong, what they wish they had done differently, what mistakes they made. And that was my first category of guests. So I looked to, and that was easy to, to do. I could identify a successful solo practitioner or small firm owner, call them up and say, hey, I got this podcast. Love to have you on. Talk about what you did right, what you did wrong. And then you can spread it around and use it as a marketing tool. It's a win-win for everybody. And I didn't have a single person ever turn me down. And so that's the first category. And then, like I said, I listened to uh, podcasts about entrepreneurs the entrepreneurial space was exploding or had exploded already. And it was kind of the focus of a lot of my peers and friends. So I thought, well, I'm going to use this as a vehicle to invite some entrepreneurial types on the program. Those that have a mindset or a view of life or an approach to business that attorneys would be well advised to pay attention to. And so that was my second category. And then the third category of guests speaks to the fact that I'm a techie from the start. I was a techie. I was a computer tech nerd way before it was fashionable to be a computer tech nerd. I mean, I go all the way back to punch card Fortran language days, IBM 360 computers. We put, when I worked in the space program, we put people on the moon with, and we got 10 times that power in our pocket now on our iPhone. So I was a tech guy all along. So I'm already always was, was always interested in how can I use technology and leverage technology as a solo practitioner to compete with the big boys. And so my third category of folks was what I call gadget folks, people who have a product or a service to sell to solo or small firm practitioners. So those were the that's you know defines my guest profile. Successful solos, entrepreneurs, gadget folks, or a combination thereof. 
Yeah, and if you were to lay that out like a Venn diagram, I would imagine you're going to cover in that overlapping area most of the topics and issues, one way or another, is going to come out. The, yeah. Those issues and topics that that solos and small firm lawyers uh, want to know about, and quite frankly, I think would be equally applicable to lawyers at larger firms because the problems are always the same. They just change in scale. You yeah. might have a solo who is looking to grow their book of business. And for them, it's it might be SEO and pay-per-click ads. Whereas for a lawyer at a large corporate defense firm, it's networking, it's content marketing, it's speaking engagements. The problems are the same. They just look different. Same thing yeah. when it comes to hiring people where a solo or a small firm might be looking at its first paralegal or its first associate. And you look at that compared to a, a law firm partner with a book of business that needs four or five associates, and they're going to have the same kinds of concerns the small firm lawyer will. It's just different in terms of the context that they are both practicing law in. Absolutely. Absolutely is the case. And, and I think uh, that's the appeal, right? That's the appeal of the law entrepreneur is that if you think about it, no matter where you are in your law firm's history, where you are in your career as a lawyer, or quite frankly, your career as a professional period, uh, there's going to be tips and tricks and lessons to be learned from those gadget people, from those successful solos and from those entrepreneurs. Because as we alluded to before, Neil, the karate studio owner is uh, still the same person as Neil, the lawyer, you still have the same personality. And there are things that you did in one context that are applicable in the other context. It's just a little different and has to be modified to fit the clients coming to you at your firm versus the clients coming into your studio. I couldn't say it more accurately, Wayne. That's exactly right. And, you know, one of the things, one of the feedback that I get from the audience is that they really like the variety of guests. Like I'll go through a stretch where maybe I'll have two or three solo practitioners in a row. And just when somebody's getting tired of hearing about the success that somebody's having that maybe they aren't, then I'll switch it up and I'll have a gadget folk and that person on. And they'll talk about a product or a service. And that person who is just about on the edge of getting bored with the podcast, oh, wait, wait, wait. I can learn something from this and then uh, tune in next week to find out that I got an entrepreneur on who's going to talk about the mindset associated with developing uh, new businesses. So uh, keep keeps it different, keeps it fresh. I, I find myself having fascinating conversations all the time. I keep, I have no difficulty finding guests, generally speaking. And I try and throw a few wrinkles in every once in a while to to change things up. Like I had a memory expert on one time and he talked about how to memorize and remember your complex series of um, data points and what have you. And I had a lot of feedback on that episode because attorneys were saying, man, that really helped me because as an attorney, we have to remember a lot of stuff. Yeah. And so it's been re rewarding in that sense. And then, you know, look, uh, am I making a fortune off the podcast? No. As I like to say, it's keeping me in beer and pretzels. I, I have monetized the podcast. I do have sponsors. I do have affiliate relationships. I do get benefits from for whatever value it is. I am considered a personality in the legal space. And so there are some benefits to that. But again, am I making a fortune off of it? No, but it's it's... Like I said, keeping me in beer and pretzels and gives me some play money and uh, keeps me engaged. Well, you, you glossed over three things I want to address real quick because I okay. do think they're important. One, I'm curious, we talked about problems are the same. They just look a little bit different. Mm -hmm. You are, as a solo, I would think, are busy with 27 other things that you're working on related to your legal practice and your life outside of it. Same thing goes for lawyers at large law firms, at boutique firms, their marketers who are helping them. What is your process for the podcast? Are you the one who is scheduling the guests? What is your prep for yeah. your interviews, the production, the, the marketing of it? Just, just give us a brain dump here of how you do it. Yeah, so I, I do all the scheduling. Now, there's a lot of podcasts that have booking agents that 
they work with and the agent gets paid a fee for every killer guest that they book on behalf of the podcast or for the podcast. And I get approached by those folks every week, you know, Hey, put this client of mine on your podcast, 99.9% of which I reject politely, but I book all the guests myself. It's, it's pretty loose. I, I give them a scheduling link. They find a space on their calendar and they book the time on my calendar that's open to them. I have a production assistant who then sends them some material about what to expect, how to set up. I have three different outlines that I use, depending on which type of guest they are, entrepreneur, solo, or gadget person. But the first thing I tell them is I'm notorious to not following the outline. It's really just there for me as a crutch. And now really all I do is I print it out and I turn it over and I write my notes on the back. So I don't even know why I send them an outline. And that's how we work it. They send me their headshot. When we're, we're done, I tell them what episode it's going to be, when it's going to air. And we'll get back to them with propaganda that we generate on their behalf with their headshot and hope that they spread the news about the podcast. And if they've had a good time, help to market it to people that might benefit from listening. And that's been a self-fulfilling you know, cycle. Does your assistant help with the editing of the podcast? No, I have a complete different podcast editing team, Turnkey Productions out in California. I worked for a great long time with Crate Media in Ohio. So I started with Crate Media. They were fantastic, loved them. We moved in different directions and I went with Turnkey Productions, which is a pretty major podcast hosting or production outfit. So basically what happens is I record the episode. I record a specific intro. I record the ad spots, the sponsorship spots and an outro. And I send all of that to turnkey productions. They put it all together in a finished product and they post it to uh, the various podcast platforms, Apple podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and the like. The point here is that you can really choose your own adventure when it comes to podcast. You could be, if you so chose to be the podcast host and the podcast editor and the podcast marketer and the podcast oh. guest booker, or you could just show up and talk into the microphone and have other people do it for you. And I know plenty of folks who do all of it themselves and it's completely doable. When I decided to do this, I didn't know I wanted to do a podcast. I didn't know how I was going to do it. And there's a guy, Pat Flynn, who has a podcast. can't remember Pat's podcast right off the top of my head. Uh, senior moment here. Anyway, I'll think of it in a second. On his, both he and uh, John Lee Dumas got a lot of recognition for the fact that they, every month, publicized their income statement from the podcast. Mm -hmm. And anyway, so Pat had a free here's how the podcast course i think it's still free it may be behind a paywall now i don't remember but i took that course and basically told me how to set it up how to create the account in linksys which was the podcast hosting site that i used at the time um but i knew i wasn't the one that was going to do the editing although now i could but I didn't want to spend that time. So I outsourced the editing post-production to Crate Media at the time. And then they would uh, post it uh, to where it needed to be posted. And you've achieved the status of having sponsors on your podcast, as you mentioned, as anybody who, who listens would know pretty quickly. I'm curious how that came about. Were you approached? Uh, fell into it. Fell into it. <laughs> I like to go to conferences and I made friends with uh, a company called Market Circle. They're in Canada and they make a product called Daylight. Daylight is a customer relations management package. And when I started my law firm, I'm an Apple guy and I wanted to run everything on my Mac. And in those days, there weren't very many programs that you could run a law uh, firm on a Mac. But one of them that was kind of generic was Daylight. And so I became a Daylight user. I used to go to this conference 
hosted by my good friend Victor Medina, Mac Track Legal, down in uh, Florida every year. And Daylight showed up there as a sponsor. Victor is a, a Daylight user as well. So we ran in the same circles. And I met the, the folks at Daylight, told them I had a podcast and who I was trying to reach. And they said, well, that's our audience. And I said, I know, we have an intersection there. And they said, how about we sponsor your podcast? And I went, <laughs> okay. They said, can you send us your sponsorship package? I went, um... Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not having anything in, in place. And I went back to my hotel room that night and I put together a package. I, I think this is what it would include. It would, you know, if you were to work with me and here it is. And I figured I needed to give them price points based on the downloads. So I have one price point if we hit X downloads per month a second price point if we hit Y and a third price point if we hit Z. And I had no idea whether those price points were reasonable or not. It seemed to me, I just kind of gave it the eyeball test. Would I pay for that? Would I pay that kind of money? I wanted to make it cheap enough that they couldn't say no, but I wanted to make it substantive tough enough that I could, you know, as I said, buy a case of beer and a bag of pretzels. And so that's what I did. And they said, sure. And they were a sponsor of mine for four years, three, three and a half, four years. We recently made some changes and they're no longer a sponsor, but they're still great friends. And I still use daylight to this day. And then others came along. Ruby uh, used to be called call Ruby, the virtual receptionist. Again, I was a client first. I hired Ruby again, met them at the same Mac track legal conference. They're in the back of the room, chatted with them, became good friends with the folks at, at Ruby. And then I approached them finally and said, Hey, I got this podcast and, and daylight is our market circle. The makers of daylight are sp- sponsoring it. I got a couple other sponsor spots open. Would you be interested? Yes, they would. They're still a, a sponsor. So that's kind of how I fell into it. it, it it's interesting because there are people who want to reach the same audience that you as a podcaster are reaching just like there are people who want to reach the same audience that the Washington Post is reaching or the New York Times or Sports Illustrated or some niche industry trade publication. You sometimes come across in the corporate world, a really, really niche publication that you can't Mm -hmm. believe has more than a few thousand readers. Well, guess what? There are companies who want to reach those few thousand readers and thus can justify the reason for having this publication and it's editorial staff and it's admin staff. Yeah. Now I've had to, I've had to turn sponsors down because for a while there, uh, every week somebody was coming to say, Hey, can we sponsor one or two shows and i didn't want to get into that business because frankly it was too much work for me so now you got you we need to do it on a longer term basis and then the other thing is it's got to be a product that i can have faith in because if i'm going to lend my voice to it i got to be okay with it and i've had a couple that i'm just not cool with and so i've had to say hey i don't think you're right the right fit And I think that's important because I hear so many podcasts like, what are they doing advertising on this podcast? Why are they taking that advertiser's money? So, yeah. It reminds me of, there's a a very funny scene from Wayne's World, the the SNL skit that became two movies. And Mm -hmm. there's a part where Wayne and Garth are sitting and addressing the camera and they're just starting to hit it big. And they talk about never selling out they're not going to give in to the man and as they're doing it as the camera switches between one and the other they start wearing like Reebok sneakers they start having a can of Pepsi they're eating slowly out of a Doritos bag it's really obviously over the top and exaggerated but you have to be concerned that if you want to be seen as legitimate and someone who is really out there to help an audience and to, and, and to build a community that, that feels the same way that you do and wants to learn from you and learn the same things you want to learn you cannot violate that trust by becoming a shill for any companies willing to pay you a couple bucks to help defray the cost of the podcast. Like you have to be smart about that. It's not to say that you can't have sponsors. I think in this day and age, people aren't going to blink if you have a sponsor or two, especially sponsors like Daylight or Ruby 
or Mark mm-hmm. Rockwell, people who are in a way directly on point and our message to your audience because they yeah. represent the same kinds of things and provide the same kind of services that you would be advocating for if you're talking about best practices. Uh, with 300 plus episodes underneath your belt, I'm curious, when did you start to see what impact the podcast was having on you as a lawyer, as you as a personality? When did you start to get a sense that there were people on the other end of the the microphone or the end of their earbuds listening to you and actually like paying attention? Well, there's a couple of, of, of points there because a lot of people ask me, well, how does this help your law practice? Okay. So I, I make no, I, I don't hide anything on the podcast. I make it clear that I'm an estate planner working just outside of Washington, DC in the state of Maryland. And what happens there is people hear that. And so I've gotten referrals from attorneys all over the, the metropolitan area who say, I listen to your podcast. I know you do estate planning. I've got a friend or I don't do estate planning. You'd be interested in hearing this potential client. So I get referrals all the time off the podcast, not by anything I do other than by letting it be known that my day job is an estate planner. But I think the first time that I really got a sense that, okay, this podcast actually is going somewhere twofold. Number one, I was playing in a golf tournament down at the beach and I was registering on the first day signing in and the assistant pro there took my name and said, wait a second, you're Neil Tyra. I went, yeah. Hi. He said, my sister raves about you. I went, really? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I don't really recall your sister. So now she's an attorney up in Maryland and she listens to your podcast all the time. And she just talks about, uh, I I don't know who she's listening to podcasts, but I remember the name, you you have podcasts, right? I went, yeah, 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 I do. Here's my podcast business card Mm -hmm. and uh, tell your sister I'm really happy. And then towards the end of the tournament, when I, I actually said, Hey, give me your sister's name and address. Let me send her something. And so he said, Oh, that would make her day. So that would, that was kind of funny. The other time that I realized this made sense was right about this time four years ago, because this week is the ABA tech show in Chicago. And I always really wanted to go to it. And I went there four years ago, paid my way to go. And I was registering to go to, into the tech show conference and they asked me for my business card so they could fill in the uh, thing. And I I accidentally pulled out my podcast business card, not my law firm business card. And when I pulled out the podcast business card, the person who's doing the registering registration said, Oh, you have a podcast. I went, well, yes, yes, I do. Fairly successful one said, well, you should go down there to media access and get a media credential. Oh yeah, maybe I should. I'll do that. And I walked down there and I handed my, and she told me that I needed to get a media access badge. And I said, Oh, sure. No problem. You got a card and the card. Got me. What does this give me? Anything you want, anywhere you want, all access to everything. Wow. And so I thought this podcast might have some monetary value or some entertainment value. And I like to go to conferences. I spend a lot of time pre pandemic. And now as we're coming out of the pandemic more and more, um, going to conferences. And so now I actually do play that card purposefully. I solicit the opportunity to get media credentials in exchange for reporting on the conference. Now I make it clear if I'm not going to hold punches, if I think criticism is warranted. And frankly, every conference that I've ever gotten credentialed at has made it clear they wouldn't want me to, they don't want to, they're not trying to control the cover. So I go to Clio, I go to ABA Tech Show, I go to Avo, and it's been really good. Now, also trying to leverage it into speaking engagements, and that's starting to come along. So it's been a great, great run. How do you report on the events? Would you then subsequently have a guest who was from the organization? How, how does that reporting happen? Yeah, so I'll do. I'll either have an organizer or 
somebody or I'll do a live podcast from the event. I've done that multiple times. I did a live podcast where literally I took my microphone that I'm talking in right now and has an adapter, plugged it into my iPhone, fired up voice memos and did a man in the streets kind of interview. Hey, what do you think of the ABA tech show? What's caught your interest? What do you think I, our, our listeners should be paying attention to? Really high, highly regarded episode that one was. I'll also, I mean, for me, uh, trolling the exhibitors floor space at these tech shows uh, or conferences is a great place for me to make connections for the podcast. And some of my best guests I met that way, some of my gadget folks. So it's, it, it, you know, while the sponsorship money is keeping me in beer and pretzels, the other things are really substantive and can be useful to building my practice and building my name recognition and therefore improving my law practice as well. When you mentioned making connections for the podcast, what have you done outside of your convention and events presence? Are you, have you ever paid to publicize your podcast through Facebook ads or LinkedIn ads or done any kinds of paid promotion? No. So it's all organic. Yeah. Now I do have a presence, a social media presence on Twitter and Facebook and a Facebook group that has several thousand people in it people who have listened to the podcast and joined the group. And so I do have that audience and that reach, but I've not paid for any advertising or promotion of the podcast. Uh, it's been in that sense, it's, it's been all organic. Well, I think too, just about that Facebook group, you wouldn't have a couple thousand people in there if you were consistently selling them and hitting them over the head yeah. with sponsored posts yeah. or pitches for your $97 podcast boot camp, right? Again, it's trust yep. just like those sponsors. If you want to create a community based on you podcasting, you can't violate that trust by trying to shake them and get the coins to come out of their pockets. Well, I, I use the same barometer as I use for, for booking guests. If the traffic in the Facebook group isn't interesting to me, it's not going to be interesting to other people. And like, you know, my post the other today or yesterday was I need to spend a lot of time in my to-do list. It's gotten out of control. Something just personal, something that every solo small firm practitioner, every lawyer can relate to. My task list, my to-do list is killing me. What's going on here? And it, it generated some traffic. Some people messaged me offline and I might get uh, a, another uh, episode out of that. So I just try and keep it real. I know that sounds, that sounds kind of trite, but I do. It would appear the proof is in the pudding that you get this feedback or you get these insights from your audience. It's a validation that they share your point of view and that you are in, in, just like a tech company has product market fit. You've got like point of view audience fit where the yeah. audience follows you, you're trusted but you've built that trust. It didn't come from day one or day five or, or day 365. It took time. But as a result of that, you get the benefit of loyal people who are willing to join your Facebook group, listen to your podcast, and really help position you as a leader in the legal industry, especially when it comes to small businesses and, and entrepreneurial thinking. Well, I will tell you, I, I didn't get to 10,000 downloads a month instantaneously. That curve, that incline started off as a couple of dozen. <laughs> and, and, and it's gradually increased over the course of time. So uh, part of that's consistency, doing it every week and um, trying not to screw up. There's so much more we could tackle. I'm not going to, but the consistency and, and the growth, I guess I'd have to ask you, when did you hit 10,000 downloads for the first time? Back around the fall, the beginning of fall of 2021. Did you see an uptick in downloads once COVID hit and, and people started oh, thinking yeah. about what's next yep. for them in their legal career? Yep, sure did. Yeah, it's fascinating that you can almost watch in real time as people's... Oh, for sure. You, you can also see in December when they start turning their attention elsewhere and downloads <laughs> go down in December. Well, you can just play <laughs> Christmas music for the month yeah. of December. Maybe you'll uh, boost those ratings right back up, those downloads right back up. 
Neil, I appreciate you being so generous with your time and chatting with me about the behind the scenes of the law entrepreneur as well as your legal career. Can you please give the audience the ways that uh, they can reach you, whether it's email, whether it's uh, website, LinkedIn, you name it? Yeah, basically search on Neil Tyra, N-E-I-L-T-Y-R-A. That finds most things, but I'm at neil at thelawentrepreneur.com. The hardest part is spelling entrepreneur, but neil at thelawentrepreneur.com. Also on Twitter, lawentrepreneur, at lawentrepreneur. And then my full name, Neil Tyra, ESQ on LinkedIn, those kinds of things. I'm not hard to find. (laughs) We'll make it even easier and we'll put all that information in this episode's show notes. Neil, again, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. uh, And good luck with the law entrepreneur and your business. Well, Wayne, I appreciate you having me on and best of luck with the podcast. It sounds like it's on getting off on the right foot. Great. Thanks, Neil. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Legally Contented. Thanks so much for tuning in. Check out the episode show notes for more information about our guests and for links to resources that we discussed during the episode. We'd appreciate your feedback and recommendations for future guests. Email us at hello at legallycontented.com. Hello at legallycontented.com. We would appreciate if you told your colleagues about this podcast, if you subscribe to the podcast and urge them to subscribe as well. And while you're at it, maybe you could even rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, thanks so much for tuning in to Legally Contented.